0: Thank you so much for tuning in to the 46th episode of the Psychology Is podcast. I know we have many consistent listeners, so big shout out to you all. And if anyone who's here who has never listened to this podcast before, welcome from the bottom of my heart. I'm Nick Fortino. We talk about all kinds of different topics on this podcast, but we've been focusing on an analysis, a critical analysis of modern day psychiatry. And I'll tell you too, for those of you who are tuning in kind of as these episodes come out, that we've done several episodes that focus on this topic. And we have several more in the very near future. It's interesting to observe, you know, what episodes have the most views and listens. And it's it's, so far, it's been the episodes on this topic. So there's clearly a very strong appetite for this type of content this critical these critical conversations about modern day psychiatry and I'm here with Dr. Sam Tamimi today, who is such an important voice so thank you so much for joining me, Dr Tamimi
1: well, thank you so much for inviting me Nick
0: you're very welcome uh, you were you've been on my radar for some time, but you like Dr. Peter Gutsche, for example, explicitly recommended that I reach out to you and speak with you. Uh, I think jo- Dr. Joanna Moncrief also uh, gave you mention in my conversation with her. So yeah, it's and I've been just preparing to talk to you. I, I read your book, Insane Medicine, which I highly recommend to people. I find myself saying that a lot, but it's true. I wouldn't be interviewing these people if I didn't find their work very valuable. And this, this, I find your book, Insane Medicine, to be unique, even among all of the um, critical examinations of psychiatry for a couple of reasons. Number one, you're an insider, you know, so like the books, for example, by maybe Robert Whitaker are invaluable, and he's kind of on the outside looking in. He's a journalist. But then people like you and the other two I mentioned, Dr. Gucci, Dr. Moncrief, you are. Psychiatrists yourselves, and you in particular, are still in practice as a child psychiatrist, uh, and you're based in the UK. And I just think that the insiders' voices are especially powerful. And the other thing I find unique about your book is it's at the same time I think the most scathing, the the harshest criticism of modern day psychiatry and the dominant ideology and at the same time the most optimistic that things are going to change i mean you even say the paradigm shift is inevitable and it's interesting because I, I think it's that's connected you know i think your your piercing insight into the core of the problem is exactly what makes you so confident that things are going to change. And you say, like, whether it's 5, 10 or 50 years, it's hard to say exactly when, but it seems that you have no doubt in your mind that the ideology that dominates modern day psychiatry will be, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is, right? Like overthrown, um, left behind. Because it's not it's not like it's going to be transformed or modified, you know, you you call for yeah. a complete departure from this ideology. So, yeah, that's that's what I find so unique and powerful about your book. And I, I just appreciate the way you've written it, the way you don't hold back. Can I just ask you in my first question before we really dive into the content yeah. of it? Um how long did it take you to write this book and and what was the experience of writing it like for you?
1: So I've, I've um, written and edited several books before, and I guess over the years of um, writing and critiquing, and I keep going back and looking at the literature and trying to uh, understand it, the, the position that I lay out in insane medicine was something that was sort of slowly coalescing into this being. Um, so it, it, interestingly, what, what happened was um, I started writing it. Um, I'd been scribbling down in various places, the concepts and as they were coming together and um So I had all of these bits and pieces in different places. And then when COVID happened and we were sort of all sent home and started working from home and um, uh, I just found myself with time on my hands Mm -hmm. and I started putting these um, different bits and pieces uh, together. Um, And it's one of those things I find writing once, uh, it takes a while while you're collecting the thoughts and the ideas. But once you get going, it just sort of, so the actual writing of it probably took place completely in about six months. I probably Mm. finished it all. Mm. Um, And interestingly, I went to some publishers and um, some uh, uh, agents. But then I decided, um, because I got some comments back And they wanted me to write something different, or they wanted me to change this, that. And then I thought, no, I want to write the book that I want to write. And if nobody buys it, if nobody's interested, that's fine. I want to to feel free to write what I actually genuinely think, whether it's right or wrong, the conclusions that I've come to. And so um, I self-published. And and actually, it seems to have been received quite well.
0: Good to hear that. Consider me another, you know, positive recipient of the book. Um, I'd like to read a quote here to kind of break the ice into diving into the content. Um, Right in the beginning of the book, I think it's in the introduction, you wrote, this book digs through the rotten undergrowth. That sits beneath the artificially scented man-made plastic gardens that we call mental health care. And that look and smell so nice on the surface, but release a stench if you poke your head in too far. And then what you do in the book is you you lead us to poke our heads in, in through the, yeah, these this and I, I know what you mean when you say this kind of, you know, this some this this whole edifice that can smell so nice and and look so professional and polished there's a certain flavor that a person gets I think when they just start to look into mental health care services and they they see oh okay so there's this there's this entire book with all kinds of different disorders that we've discovered and and there's you know we understand them and there's ways to treat them and And if you just ask your doctor about this medication, you might be, you know, on the right track again. But it's I couldn't agree more that there's this disgusting rot beneath that that is marked by, you know, monetary incentives from drug companies and just just flimsy concepts with no real validity to them and just downright false narratives that are perpetuating many different cultures so so let's let's dive into it and and the the next question i want to ask you is basically can you just articulate for our listeners what is the dominant ideology that you say in your book is the the real problem here the central problem is the dominant ideology what is this dominant ideology
1: yeah, um, I mean that quote. I think um, reflects that we've developed uh, an idea and popularized an idea that what we think of when it comes to states of distress or or difference that we can. Uh, And that we have made scientific advances that has enabled us to accurately categorize these different states into into functional categories that are similar to functional categories in the rest of medicine. And so we use the, the, the word diagnosis. And the when you get the right diagnosis that matches the condition that you're experiencing, then there are specific treatments that are matched to that diagnosis that have the capacity to improve your well-being. So that's the kind of dominant model. Some people call it the biomedical model because it draws on the idea of diagnosis and it draws on the idea of diseases. But I think it's more than just the biomedical model. I would think of it more as a technical model. So um, uh, the uh, idea that uh, there are specific techniques that enable you to accurately identify the nature of the problem and by accurately identifying the nature of the problem, you can uh, identify the correct treatment and why I think it's probably better to think of it in those terms than just biomedical because biomedical is dominated by a technical approach, mm. but it's not just a technical approach is because sometimes people think that when you're critiquing the biomedical model, you're critiquing the dominance and correctly, the dominance of a pharmacological approach mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to, to, distressed or altered mental states. But for me, the, the problem is deeper than that, because it's not just the pharmacological approaches, but it's also this what we call the psychotherapeutic approaches. If you're fitting them into this same technical model, you're going to come across the same potentially similar issues. It's not the same, but potentially similar issues. Mm-hmm. But also when you take that step of categorizing people, that in itself has an effect on the meanings and how you experience the nature of your distress. So it it can already have a transformative effect without uh, introducing any therapy, pharmacological or psychological, you've already Transformed and given a a new system of meaning, right? Which which um, then can expand a certain narrative that you start to say about yourself, that other people start to say about you, um, and you know it, that's one of the things that where when we're dealing with um, human distress and 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 behavioural difference is that how you construct that, the meanings you give that, has a direct effect. Um, And this marks it out as different to other parts of medicine, but not entirely different because other parts of medicine actually does struggle with Mm. um, uh, the excessive technicalization uh, of the role, sometimes at the expense of the Relational and caring side and the meaning side. But just for the sake of understanding the critique, Mm -hmm. when you're diagnosing somebody with um, kidney stones, the kidney doesn't get upset about the diagnosis and think, you know, why am I here? Why did this happen to me? So, you know, when you're diagnosing kidney stones, it is a different system of meaning creation as to when you're diagnosing somebody with, you know, for example, depression. Right. Because that now has an effect on how you interpret your experience. Instead, you know, if you you told somebody they're feeling sad because, you know, they broke up with their boyfriend uh, a few weeks ago creates a different um, meaning system than saying oh i think you're suffering with depression similarly if you talked about you know you're you're feeling understandably sad but i'm really impressed with the way you've managed to keep going and you're still going into school and you know again the the, the meanings we provide um actually have an effect. So we've kind of got the whole thing the wrong way around. We seem to imagine that when it comes to what we're calling mental health, we have the capacity to identify and provide the correct meaning and the correct way of interpreting it. But it's actually the other way around. We're in the business of creating meaning Mm -hmm. rather than discovering them. Mm-hmm. And and it's the problem gets worse when you imagine that you're actually discovering meanings when in fact you're creating them. And if that lack of acknowledgement of your role in creating meanings um, uh, and for you to think that you're actually discovering them by making a diagnosis like depression aggravates. Um, the possibility for people to be able to reinterpret their experiences or have a different frame of reference to interpret their experiences in a way that might help them in the long term. Right.
0: Your point is very well taken, and I think it's very important because I I think what you're saying about how it's one thing to critique the biomedical model, but you're saying we have to take it further than that, you know, because there's, yeah. I often mention these key terms that I think are important for people to understand when tracking all of this, which are, you know, the diagnosis, the etiology, the prognosis, and the treatments. And so there are many people, I think there, there's a greater number of people who are quick to criticize the biomedical model and and deny that there are biological causes of these conditions and deny that there should be biologically based treatments for those conditions. And that is a very important critique. And you're saying we have to take it further than that and question these conceptualizations that we're we're coming up with in the first place. Go back to the diagnosis in the first place and look very closely at the validity of these diagnoses and of the effects of being diagnosed with something or diagnosing someone with something that's again point very well taken in your one of your last chapters of the book you talk about how the problem can become the problem is that Mm -hmm. related to what you're saying right now
1: it is it is maybe it'll be worth just um further deconstructing the idea of diagnosis because this bit i think i've um i've concluded after debating this with so many people um, from within my profession and from allied professions. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I think what I'm saying now is a statement that is as close as you can get to a statement of scientific truth. So for me, the issue about diagnosis is not an opinion. Mm. Um, So let let me just explain. Uh, We we classify things in nature all the time. Language is a system of classification. We use classifications to help us orientate to what's going on around us um, and to have various shorthands to communicate. Um, But there are different types of systems of classification. So a system of classification by diagnosis implies a a system of classification based on a proximal cause. In other words, an initial cause for whatever you're um, diagnosing. This is why I don't know if you have this in America, but we certainly have it in the UK. If there's something wrong with your car and uh, and you can't figure it out, you'll take the garage and they say they're going to run some diagnostics. In other words, they are going to do something to try and understand the initial cause of whatever that problem is, and we use that concept of diagnosis in 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 other situations. So, diagnosis is a system of classification based on proximal cause. Um, parts of medicine it works really well. So, if you have an accident and you've got a swelling in your leg and you can't. Wait there, and you go to the accident or, well, you call it the emergency room, and um, they carry out an x ray and they see that there's been a fracture. So, your diagnosis now that you have a fracture of your tibia or whatever, or fibula or whichever bone it is, is um, telling you what the cause of at least the initial cause of your you know, uh, pain and swelling and the fact that you can't wait there. And the treatment now is going to be specific to that cause. So in those acute situations, we see medicine working at its best. There's something uh, which you can immediately hone in on and you, you treat specifically and the treatment addresses the cause. And there's lots of bits of medicine that are, that are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and now you can build a technical bit of knowledge because you can start sub-classify, um classifying fractures. You can look at other things that might influence your likelihood to get a fracture. You can talk about different types of accidents causing different types of fractures. You can um, start building knowledge around specific treatments, different type of treatments, um, you know, uh, physiotherapies, et cetera, et cetera. So you can now build a, a a body of knowledge that's based around a technical understanding of the nature of that particular condition. And Things was- get a bit more confident.
0: Not to yeah? interrupt, but I was just going to add, I like the way that you put it too when you were talking about the nature of this type of, an, of a phenomenon of a fractured tibia is a verifiable fact of nature. That to me was, it's a very important phrase, right? So, yes. so please continue, but we're talking right now, this example is, is of a condition that is a verifiable fact of nature.
1: Exactly. It's, it's indisputably uh, beyond the imagination of the diagnoser. Right. The diagnoser is now discovering not creating the uh, meaning of that pain and swelling and l- not being able to. They are in the process of discovering the reason for that, yes. at least the initial reason. Of course, there may be other things that sure. might be secondary. You know, there, mm-hmm. Some people might have cancers or osteoporosis or whatever, but um, things get a bit more complicated when you have Chronic conditions that maybe don't show that easily. So diabetes is a good example, or, you know, maturity onset diabetes um, is a good example because um, it, it it might present with just a susceptibility to infections or just fatigue or some vague weight loss unexplained. So it can, it can present in all sorts of ways. And you make the diagnosis of diabetes. Not by listing the experiences or the symptoms. So you do not diagnose diabetes by saying this is um, a condition of feeling thirsty, going to the toilet a lot, and fatigue, because several other conditions can, can present like that. And diabetes doesn't necessarily present like that. The definition of diabetes is your blood glucose is too high. It's again, Uh, It has an empirical anchor that exists beyond the imagination. And so the diagnosis is pointing to a specific cause. Now, there are all sorts of debates about where we should have the cutoff, about um, what types of treatments when, about what other things might be contributing to having high blood sugar in the first place, diets and all sorts of cultural things might come into that. But the diagnosis itself, and you can see that reflected in the definition, refers to some primary causal factor. Um, Things get a bit more complicated when we're into neurological conditions because now we're getting also meaning coming into it. But still, um, to some degree, neurologists try to find out specific things that they can find out. And there are still a lot of um, mysteries and areas of contention, um, but you still often have physical signs. So for example, migraines, we can't pick migraines up on any, um, you know, on, on any brain scans or ECGs or anything like that, but you do have some distinctive physical symptoms that um, often respond to certain treatments. But at the same time, it's well known that migraines can be triggered by psychological issues. Psychological issues can be uh, involved. So we're getting into more fuzzy areas. But once we get into conditions that we are calling diagnosis in, in, in psychiatry, we clearly have lost that empirical anchor. It's, it's kind of disappeared. So we're no longer talking about debates about the boundaries of, you know, what's too high blood sugar and what's acceptable levels of blood sugar. Now, it is entirely subjective. The, the parameters are subjective. The um, the things that are being reported are subjective. There's no physical signs. There's no test. there's nothing that can take you beyond your imagination as Mm. a diagnoser. Mm. So we are into a different, and and as I've said before, you are also now in um, in, in the situation, in the, if you like, the territory where you are now creating a scaffolding for how a person starts to understand their experiences. Um, To help you understand that a bit further, if we were to practice medicine in the same way that we're practicing uh, in psychiatry, you'd go to your doctor with a cough, and the doctor would ask you about the history of the cough, and they wouldn't listen to your chest, they wouldn't do an x-ray, wouldn't do a sputum sample or a peak flow meter. They'd diagnose you with a a recurrent cough disorder. but, you know, we know kind of implicitly when we go to the doctor or, or to medical profession and we're looking for a diagnosis, we want to understand the cause. We want to know if the chest pain is a, is a heart attack or is it acid reflux. We, we kind of implicitly know that diagnosis is a system of classification based on proximal cause. So when we start mistaking what we do in psychiatry, that what we're calling diagnoses that have been literally voted into existence by committees, that this is uh, something that exists in a concrete way inside you, that we've diagnosed something going wrong, something abnormal, something you've, you've not discovered what's going on because I think between inputs from the environment and outputs in terms of our experiences and behaviors is just a big black box. We really have no mechanism. The only thing we can say with certainty about that bit in the middle is that it's a meaning-making. It tries to make sense of things. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And so we actually end up creating, by giving a diagnosis, we've created a certain scaffolding. And I think the scaffoldings we create when we do mental health diagnoses are potentially um, disempowering. Mm. I mean, I can understand the psychological appeal of it. it. It would be nice to think that you can go to somebody and he can tell you your suffering is the result of this condition or that condition. And now we'll st- you hope oh something's been understood and it will give you hope that now they'll know what to do about it um so even if the scientific thing isn't valid and it's clearly not valid you you can understand why it would still be appealing for psychological reasons um you know people would then think oh i'm not alone in this you know there are other people who've, who've got this condition, but for that to be something for us to say, okay, fair enough, the the science is missing, but actually there is a real pragmatic role for um, working in this way, then we would really need to demonstrate that when we make diagnosis, and since we've been making diagnosis, we're making more and more diagnosis than we've ever done before, that we would really need to demonstrate is having some positive impact on people's lives, that mm-hmm. their lives are improving as a result. That uh, the, the treatments are making a difference at some population level, some way of measuring that there is a positive difference. But the evidence is that um, in, um, in those countries that have got the most mental health services, some of the worst outcomes. In fact, there seems to be almost a correlation. Not almost, there is a correlation, and no correlation is not necessarily causation. But there is, seems to be a correlation that the more treatments we provide, the more people seem to end up long term disabled and taking disability benefit, um, the higher the number of people who don't get back into work or or into education, you know, that the the future outcomes of those who get caught in mental health systems is really quite poor. And it's not something that you see in other branches of medicine. Mm. Um, So in some ways it feels like a cruel trick to be playing on people that we're not being honest with them, that when we give them a diagnosis, this is not a diagnosis. We're providing a way for you to think about your experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, so these these are the types of questions that the more I understood about the lack of evidence and about the poor outcomes, these are the sorts of things that made me want to go deeper into understanding what, what is the... Potential implications of running a system that has such poor outcomes that is not based on um, anything that could be that appears to be advancing any scientific knowledge anytime soon and yet we're acting as if the opposite is the case. What are the implications? why is this um Why is it resulting in such poor outcomes? Mm. Why are we not making any progress with our scientific knowledge? Mm. And and I guess my answer was that we've created a paradigm in starting with the belief that we know how to categorize people into something that uh, has a scientific validity, a scientific starting point, that, um, that as long as we operate in that paradigm, this is what we should expect. We can't expect scientific knowledge to, to advance, and we can't expect clinical outcomes to improve. That basically has been my conclusion. Mm. Um, Yeah.
0: Thank you for, for deconstructing that, you know, the, the, the nature of a psychiatric so-called diagnosis. I think that's just such a such an important thing to understand for people. Um, and i want I want to read a couple more quotes. Um, one thing you wrote, to clear up this abominable mess, we must first read our trainings, services, and culture. Of the pseudoscience that has delivered the diabolical outcomes we have, where services are better at creating long-term patients, being slowly poisoned with neurotoxins, erroneously labeled medication, than alleviating understandable distress. And as you know, that's just one of those statements that which is why I said in the beginning, you know, this is one of the most scathing harsh criticisms of psychiatry, but it is warranted. Uh, in my opinion, um, and then to pick up on more specifically the note you know that that we're on right now regarding diagnosis, you know, I, I hear what you're saying that it would be one thing to to admit that these are not diagnoses in the same way that all other medical diagnoses are diagnoses, and it, it would be one thing to admit that, but then say, but it is helpful. For a person to receive this, like way of thinking about their condition, but there's no evidence that that's helpful. And moreover, as you say, you recognize a the deeper problem in in all of this. In this, like you, I think it's a great way to put it. What you just said that when a person, when a psychiatrist or psychologist makes a diagnosis, they are offering a way of thinking about that condition. But the individual receiving the diagnosis, that's not their framework. They're not thinking of it like that. Like this person is offering me a way of thinking about what I'm experiencing because the psychiatrist doesn't explain it like that. But that is that is what's happening. And the deeper problem with that way of thinking about the condition, as you wrote, is that um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but our language has been trapping us into a fear of and alienation from the richness and intensity of our emotional lives and that is yeah. like like you know like you wrote that the deeper problem um in in this paradigm and i mm. I couldn't agree more i I think now I also you know I thought I was thinking to myself I usually don't play devil's advocate in, in any way because I'm not you know I I'm such in alignment with with my guests on this topic but I do want to do a little bit of devil's advocacy sure for you for and and just you know so that people can hear what your response would be to someone who disagrees with you. Um so so what would you say, you know, to a person or a parent of a person or a spouse of a person who's you know severely depressed and they're they're almost lifeless? they can't function what would you say for for a person who's experiencing that who might hear the quote that i just read off and be like what do you mean the richness of my emotional life i'm severely depressed i can't even function how can you say that what would be your response to a comment like that
1: well i'll take you one step um back if i may uh because i think you you hinted at um, the something that I argue in, in the book about a, a process that... Um, so this is not a scientific position, but this is like clinical reflections. Mm. Um, so this is now in the realms uh, of opinion. One of the things that happens, because I'm a consultant child psychiatrist, so the, the sorts of young people, so I see young people under 18, and the sorts of young people that get referred to me tend to be the ones who've, um, uh, well, either parents are looking for medication or looking for a diagnosis, but also I get a fair number of people who've been seen by other people in the team, uh, often been seen by a number of others and who've sort of been in the services for maybe a year, maybe two years, and things don't seem to be getting better, or this is the second or third time. So there's sort of people who seem to get stuck. And um, uh, I-, I will come back to your severe presentation <clears throat> in a minute, but um, <clears throat> I just want to take you through this process um, yes, before, before getting to that. Uh, and one thing that I began to understand after a while is that um, uh, however brilliant the therapy might have been, um, and some of them had been also been prescribed medication, and things had improved and then not improved, um, however brilliant the pre- um, uh, in um, the, the intervention had been. If there wasn't a way of shifting this idea that there's something in there that's gone wrong, that's dysfunctional, um, the chances of making a more enduring recovery seem to be slimmer. And I began to understand a bit more because, uh, um, I mean, I've been a consultant for a long time. I've had various management positions. I've done a lot of training, including training for young psychiatrists, uh, trainee psychiatrists. So um, one thing that trainee psychiatrists recognize very much is that they get see, this is in adults, they get to sit in and do clinics for patients who've been with the service a long time. And who just come, you know, for year after year for their review appointments, who changed their medication. And they're very familiar. I've had these chats with them because it hasn't changed much from the days that I was doing adult psychiatry many years ago. As you'll find, they've had several different diagnoses. They've probably been tried on each class of psychiatric drugs. They usually by then, by several years, have three or four different medications that they're on. And, you know, some of them are sort of functioning at, uh, you know, some sort of acceptable level uh, and other ones just keep coming in and out of hospital. So um, and then as a child psychiatrist, you've got that chance to see how this process might be developing in its early stages. And one of the things that really struck me was that once people had the idea and their parents and others that there was something wrong. You know, um, and I don't just mean like the idea that there's some sort of chemical imbalance. It doesn't even have to be as as overt as that, just that there's something wrong in there, There's something wrong with me. Um, uh, One of the phrases I really hate at the moment is one of my pet hates is this idea of emotional dysregulation. We've got all these words, all these pathological words to to label people. That they're reacting the way that they shouldn't be. That they're feeling the, the way they shouldn't be. They're um, responding in a way that's too extreme. They're being too angry. They're being too sad. They're being too hyperactive. They're being too shy. You know, we have a myriad of of ways of labeling these things. Um. So. Uh, and I and I remember. Um, years ago one of the when a penny started to drop for me um uh and i've i i'm I'm trained in various psychotherapies as well i'm not not just a psychiatrist but i used to do kind of more what i would think of as more formal psychotherapies systemic therapy psychodynamic and so on and um so many years ago this this young Woman who I was seeing for sessions, and I'd also seen her with her parents, and and she'd been in services many a lovely young lady, and one day we had that conversation about um, her feeling that she had this thing called depression, and that somebody had told her at some point it was treatment-resistant depression, um, and. We started having conversation, and at the end of the conversation, I was trying to convince her: "There's nothing wrong in you. You're perfectly. You're reacting the way human beings are meant to react. A lot of shit has happened. Excuse my language. A lot of shit has happened in your life. You know, that's the way we're built. When bad things happen, we feel bad. Mm-hmm. And when bad things happen, when we're kids, when we're young kids, we internalize that because as young kids, we tend to um, be much more egocentric. So we tend to f- feel that somehow we've caused the bad things to happen and even if and when we grow up we kind of internalize we've got that this horrible feeling that we're the cause you know nothing ever even if good things happen sooner or later it's all going to go wrong Um, so you're just you're just reacting as a human there's nothing wrong you've got a brilliant brain and um she recovered within a couple of days within a couple more sessions and she was ready to be just and it sort of Okay, so I didn't realize just how widespread mm. this issue was about once you start to internalize this idea that there's something essentially wrong. So, you know, uh, and we're popularizing it in the way we think about mental health. I think one of the worst things we've, we could, we're we doing at the moment is all this mental health awareness campaigns because what is what do we mean? Hmm. I do this. uh, I do quite a lot of training, and I do this uh, exercise with people I've not met before when I'm doing training. And I ask them, "Right, let's start with the basics. What what is mental health? What is what is mental ill health? What does that look like?" And uh, and people come up with interesting thoughts, you know. uh, But what they all have in common is that they all are talking about something subjective. They can't find any clear way of hooking. So it's so open to interpretation. So when we get so many people thinking, oh, I've been feeling really bad for the last couple of weeks. And your parents are thinking that, and you're hearing all this thing about mental health awareness, and that maybe you need to see somebody and you need to intervene early, because if you don't intervene early, you're going to have more problems later in life. And it starts you on a journey um, <clears throat> of a kind of antagonism with a part of yourself that you might feel that you have to um, find a way to suppress, control, get rid of. and. Um, Rather than how you might accommodate, understand, um, uh, be able uh, to accept, and I don't mean that in a flippant way, but be able to uh, um, appreciate that none of us can actually escape suffering. Suffering is part of the human condition. It's the way we're built. Um, uh, That... um, So instead of doing that, you you are in danger of inviting people into a potentially lifelong struggle with a part of themselves that they've come to experience as being something fundamentally wrong with it, something fundamentally out of the ordinary with it. Um, And this is where the whole cycle of the problem becomes the problem, starts to take root. You start carrying around an idea that um, this this is something wrong. You can't deal with it. You need an expert to cure it. And if it keeps coming back, that means it's even more serious than you first thought. I often use with people the example of insomnia because most people experience insomnia and how um, Usually the thing that first keeps you up at night is you're stressed or you're know you worried about something so you can't get to sleep. And then after a few nights of not sleeping, you start to think, well, is it going to happen again tonight? Mm. Uh, Am I not going to sleep well? Um, How many hours have I got to get to sleep before I have to wake up and go to school or go to work or whatever? So as the process go on, eventually the cause of insomnia is insomnia and um, you might then try various things and if it improves um, uh, your sleep for a few nights, you think hallelujah and then a few nights later it's back again, Uh, so now you think uh, you have to find something even more. So each time you try an intervention and it either doesn't work or only works for a while, and it comes back again. It increases your sense of how difficult and oppressive this thing you're trying to get rid of is. Mm-hmm. So it sets up a relationship and a sense and a a way of a, a certain meaning and a certain interpretation that you give to that problem. So that's why I call it the problem causes the problem. So um, whatever started it. In the first place, has maybe become less relevant now to the fact that you have the problem and that you keep looking for solutions. And um, what I understood was something that appears to be helpful for quite a few people that I see is to help them change their relationship with the problem instead of seeing it as something uh, oppressive, instead of seeing that they can't get on with their life if they don't get rid of it. It's about how do you help people to find a way to um, not feel um, scared by this because it's like, don't feel scared about your emotional life. Um, And there's all sorts of different ways of, and different metaphors that uh, um, I can use, but the basic message, is my basic starting point for everybody I see is that you're doing the best that you can. The things that you're experiencing are within the realms of the ordinary, that's the word I use, and or understandable. That you're reacting as a human being and the way we're built to react. And also that I I start with the Um, assumption that most of us, that we're all, as well as being vulnerable, because I think all the mental health propaganda is propagating a view of human beings as being, uh, um, uh, you know, a bit like the equivalent of the original sin. We're all vulnerable until proven otherwise sort of thing. Um, But actually... I start with the view that people are, you know stories of suffering are also stories of survival. Mm. people get through they've got they've got capacities they've got abilities to to bear and actually sometimes we learn more about the nature of life, the nature of our world um through our experiences of suffering as opposed to trying to you know there's countless Accounts of people who've had, you know, had their lives transformed, and it doesn't mean that the suffering was any less horrible, or 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 that that it was something that they wished upon themselves. But we shouldn't just dismiss suffering as something that we just have to get rid of or eliminate. It's something part of being human. Um, so, with your person who was doesn't matter how severe things are. I'd really want to understand what is the model that they have and the model that the people around him or her have of what's going on. And that's kind of where I work these days. I'm trying to help people think about. So I, I think as practitioners, whether you're a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, psychologist, we're all essentially philosophers. We're, we're working with systems of meaning. And um, what we provide is rather than us providing a system that um, gives you the correct meaning, we provide models with consequences. So we should always think about the models. We, we, we want to provide models. We want people to have ways of understanding and thinking about their experiences. But we should always think about what are the consequences of this way of thinking about. And that does mean sometimes working in a diagnostic frame if there are certain things that uh, I think actually the consequences Of working in that frame, at least for part part of it, might be beneficial to this particular young person whose parents have really lost um, their patience with them. You know, as a way of. So, Mm -hmm. my starting point is thinking, you know, being aware that you are not going to be discovering the truth about what's going on, you're going to be offering a way of a framework for how you make sense about what's going on. So think about your model, not in terms of its truth, but in terms of the consequences of using that model.
0: Hmm. Brilliant. This brings <clears throat> several different thoughts to my mind. Quickly, and uh, just a comment on, on what you just said about how those of us In this field are essentially philosophers i like that and i agree with that and i have thought about how you know many of us like i I have a phd in psychology and most people know what phd stands for it stands for philosophy doctorate we are i'm a doctor of the philosophy of psychology and that i think is the right way to describe it you know and and what's interesting to me is that uh, a psychiatrist, unless they are I'm not sure if it's I, i'm not I don't know what the curriculum looks like for becoming a psychiatrist when you go to institutions in the u k like you did, but I know that for as much as I've looked into it in the u s and and talked to you know u s licensed psychiatrists, the curriculum in medical school it makes sense to me that they don't end up being called PhDs in the field. They're medical doctors, right? So a psychiatrist is an MD. And to me, that lack of philosophical thinking um, is, is, is evident. And it's, it, the, the title, you know, lacking the PhD in front of their doctorate, it's just, appropriate to be honest so what i'm saying is i think i think psychiatrists would benefit tremendously if they begin to think more philosophically and it's very apparent to me that the curriculum of in medical school and as you become a psychiatrist it really does not push people to think philosophically in this way which makes me feel all the more respect for psychiatrists like you who choose to think philosophically about this so that was one thought i had the other thought i I was having is you know there's in in social psychology some people may be aware of what's called attribution theory which is simply a way of understanding the way we think about each other and the way we think about ourselves and so an attribution theory is basically saying you know we we're all we're often trying to identify the causes of why people did what they did or why we do what we do and so in other words we are attributing the cause of a behavior we're attributing a behavior to a certain cause and in attribution theory there's something known as an internal attribution and an external attribution and an internal attribution is when you say basically that person acted like that toward me because they are like that my server was rude to me because they are a jerk. Or, or you can think about it in terms of yourself too, right? Like I act the way I do because that's who I am. It's in me. So that's an internal attribution. And then an external attribution is when you attribute a person's behavior to causes that are external and impersonal, not internal and dispositional, but situational. And so that would be like, you know, my server was rude to me because they must have been really busy. And situationally, uh, and, you know, that must have caused them a lot of stress. So then there's what's called the fundamental attribution error, which is when you misattribute an individual's behavior to internal causes when it's actually due to external causes. So you thinking your server was rude to you because they're a jerk, but really, they have rent due tomorrow and they don't have the money for it. Yeah. And they have five tables all at once and et And the And the thing mm. about the difference between those two is it elicits a much different emotional response toward other people exactly. when you're making attributions exactly. of other people, right? Because the, the, the acknowledgement you're making basically when you make an external attribution is if I was in that situation, I would also be acting like that too. Right. And it's not personal to them. So it's, you know, and basically the goal is to just kind of get that right. And when it comes, so that fundamental attribution error, when you are attributing a person's behavior to internal causes, when they're actually due to external causes, the epitome of this is what we're talking about now, psychiatric diagnoses and the etiological assumption assumptions about psychiatric mm. so-called diagnoses. and and to me, It's a crime against humanity to make a person who is living in an unjust society, who is understandably distressed and anxious and depressed due to societal cultural factors to make them think that it's something wrong with them, with their brain. a you know, in the U.S., there's about 50 million people in poverty in one of the Mm. richest countries in the world. That's. So how can that be right? How can that be right? And you know, and many people are aware of the famous quote by the Indian philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti, who said that it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Yeah, and it's and it's no measure. On the other hand, it's no measure of sickness or unhealth to be well adjusted, or to be poorly adjusted to an unjust society. So I, I just this. I feel very strongly about this, you know, because what you're saying about the way a person is um understanding their own condition, it just matters so much. And there can it be does. right. And yeah. there, can, there can be a sense of shame that that gets attached to all of the feelings because now I think there's something wrong with me. It's my fault in some way. It's mm-hmm. it's my fault for not getting better yet. And so yeah these are these are some of the thoughts that are coming to my mind and the other thing i want to say really quick before i want to hear more of what you're thinking is i i love your approach you know and and to acknowledge that suffering is inherent in life and then that and then we we seem to be attempting to delineate between normal amounts of suffering and abnormal amounts of suffering and over time when you examine the dsm that line separating normal from abnormal levels of suffering has moved so that now it includes more of what was once considered normal amounts of suffering and you can um, the trajectory is that that line is going to continue to move to continue to include What was once thought of as normal amounts of suffering and that's a huge problem because it's that that, that's this insidious trap that you are referring to and it can cause people to identify as an individual who has this condition it can cause them to believe and therefore expect their brain produces these you know depressed and anxious mental states on a regular basis because they have this so-called chemical imbalance theory so these internalized beliefs that we that we have are profoundly problematic and and make matters much worse
1: yeah there's um there's very little we can do directly to change people's um, social circumstances and their histories. But one thing we can do is provide them with a framework that doesn't end up blaming something. The The, the fault thing is a, is an interesting one because they're, one of the attractions or apparent attractions of the idea of a psychiatric diagnosis is that it's not my fault. Right. That there's something, um, and it's a it's a strange one because, um, in many ways, you're you, you can't escape an idea then that somehow you are the cause of your suffering. That there's. It's kind of even worse than the idea that it's it's your fault, because mm-hmm. if it's your fault, maybe there's something you can do to rectify if you still have some uh, idea that you have some capacity. But I think the main thing that we can provide to people is an opportunity to think of um, what they're experiencing in, in, in a less, in a more human way rather than something um to be feared something that there's something there's sort of some monster trapped inside them that they that they're constantly having to be in a battle against to try and control um it might not make your life any better to understand that um uh not being able to uh, pay the rent and your children's school ringing every other day about uh is um you're not maybe not going to be able to change that but at least for them to understand well god if i was in your shoes i'm not sure how i would deal with that mm. you know and to and to help them um uh, uh to view it in a more human as opposed to there's something deeply wrong with me way. Um, and to have a bit more, because um, I think as a culture, we, there's something paradoxical that happens. Um, we tend to promote the idea that we've become a very tolerant culture. But actually, the more we've created human typologies, I think it's a reflection of how, how intolerant we are, mm. and how narrow our idea of what the ideal human being should be like. Mm. Similarly, we've we've got this uh, idea that we're, you know, we we we're very hot on child protection and making sure children have a have a good start in their life and so on. And yet we've got a generation that's been pathologized more than any mm. other generation. Um, so we've got all of these paradoxes that speak to a culture that is um, really quite, uh, quite um, intolerant of the nature of, of um, uh, human experiences and the diversity of human experiences, wanting to pigeonhole. Um, but. I think it even goes worse than that because in its um cultural life, what I've understood is um diagnoses now operate as brands. And this is why the popular brands continue to expand because um they are very subjective. Most of us can um identify with many things that get described in a in a diagnosis. I, I kind of think of it almost like reading your astrology stars. It's, it's such a vague thing. So once it gets into the marketplace, um, it's not just medication, but experts, books, courses. Um, institutes, uh, research—you know—a whole set of things. Products starts to grow up around popular brands. The popular brands are behavioral problems in kids and emotional and anxiety problems as as they get. These are the these are the big brands. So you find certain diagnostic categories attract more and more so, so they just become big money making machines and that pushes the expansion of these concepts um out into you know all corners uh, and so we we're getting seem to be where we've been on a on a on a journey of alienating ourselves from our the ordinariness of our emotional lives and our behavioural difference, mm. um, and I don't think well, I think there's plenty of evidence, one that you know scientifically this 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 is not going to hold. Um, you mentioned that right at the beginning, and of course, you know the classical writing on that is Thomas Kuhn, who used the lang- social language of revolutions because you know what we call science is done by scientists, it's done by people. People have, you know, cling to certain ideas and uh, they have their own cognitive dissonance to deal with. And and so I think he correctly used the term scientific revolutions happen when a paradigm shift happens. Mm. And that's why I don't think um, that there is too much that doesn't work with the current diagnostic paradigm. It is not open to reform. If you just try and reform it, you're you're, um, not going to be able to affect how we might improve our knowledge or how we might improve our clinical outcomes. I think we've got so much evidence that that's the case. Mm. The, The scientific evidence means that our system of diagnosis is unsustainable. We would. That's why it has to be more than reform. It has to be some paradigm shift. Mm. And and we do have other models out there. Plenty of other models, actually. That you know that are, if you like, on the shelf and ready to go. From power threat meaning framework to open dialogue to narrative approaches to feedback based models. You know, there's 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 a few. There's a good few out there. So yes. It's not that we would have to invent something from scratch, but we would have to move beyond uh, a diagnostic-based model. Mm. And that's not the same as saying that, you know, that we we are not going to um, that this is about not recognizing people's distress. Quite the opposite. It's about recognizing that this is this is what it means to be human and it's And it's about providing support that actually um, confirms builds on that and helps people discover their own capacity and their own empowerment, even if it doesn't improve you know their social situation at least it, it might give them uh, might make them a little less hard on themselves mm
0: would you go as far to say that there's no use for the DSM?
1: I think, um, I think the DSM and the ICD in mental health simply need to be, you know, ceremonially burnt. <laughs> uh, we, we'd have to get rid of it, and we'd have to educate the public that, um, you know, We've had, uh, I I don't know how much it reached um, the US, but in the UK, it did get into the news about the recent um, meta-analysis of the um, chemical serotonin in in depression. So, you know, you you do get things from time to time, but these sorts of things, we'd need a lot more um, publicity Mm. to help people understand that this story that we have diagnoses, that we know what we're talking about, that we know how to make them, and that we have treatments that are very specific, and that these treatments have good long-term outcomes. Mm. These are all the stories that need to start being deconstructed. Yes. So you that would wonder. need to go alongside, you know, uh, a, a, a thoroughgoing revolution in mental health services. Mm
0: one of my, when I think about how would this revolution occur, or it's, you know, perhaps you could say that it is, that it has, that it's underway, but how will it really gain momentum and reach a critical mass? Uh, I'm an educator, you know, and I'm very proud to say I'm very, very happy, I guess, with my, with the decisions I made as my younger self that led me not to becoming a, clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist, but a psychologist who is an educator and a researcher and who thinks philosophically about all of this and and who is willing to provide what I frame as consultations with people who are struggling. Um, But I just think, I don't know, again, when I think about how will this revolution gain momentum, I really think education of the masses is a critical ingredient. And I see it happen. You know, I teach in the college setting. And so I see, you know, large groups of students, many like consistently. Right. And we we get into this and and, um, you know, students who take my psychology courses end up with a decent level of education on the context around all of this, including the barbaric history of treatments in Mm. in psychiatry and and then just all of the philosophical underpinnings um, Mm. behind the current paradigm which are so questionable and and once you expose them again i could just i I witness it in real time the way students minds change around this topic and the way that the way that they're you know, feel better able to critically analyze it for themselves going forward. Um, <clears throat> so I think that's that's going to be an, an important part of the revolution, is just education. Yeah. And then, like you said, publicity, whenever mm. things are exposed, like the 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 lack of basis for the serotonin hypothesis and things like that. Yeah. Um, or or for example, just to publicize something else, there are many ongoing legal cases in the United States of foster children being drugged just Mm. in a a way that just irks your soul. It's so incredibly unjust because it's so obvious that they are are being given drugs just to manage their behavior, to make it easier on the adults who are having to supervise them. Um, and, And when you look closely at the foster care system, And much credit to the amazing people who make it good in many ways. But there's all kinds of ways that it's that if you were a child going through that, you would be very anxious or depressed. That would be a totally normal response to being completely insecure about where you're going to live, who you're going to live with, whether you're ever going to have a family. So that's that's a norm. you know, depression, anxiety. These are normal responses to a situation like that. So anyway, there's a there's a poem that I love uh by Rumi that I I think of often when I was I was thinking of it often when I was reading your book and all the ways that you talk about the importance of changing your relationship to the problem, changing the way you view it in the first place, changing your relationship to your emotions so that they don't seem like scary monsters or that they are signs that something's wrong with you. And I'll recite the poem. I got it off the top of my head. It's, it's called The Guest Go House. For so for the listeners, the, the, the poem is by Rumi. It's called The Guest House. And it goes, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, there's a new arrival, a joy, a meanness, a depression. Some momentary feeling comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes for each has been sent as a guide from beyond. That's lovely, isn't it? Lovely. That is. And I just think it's, it's a great metaphor for how to deal with emotions.
1: Make a great therapist. (laughs) Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I. I,
0: People love the poem. You know, like that's one of those poems Mm. I I like to share with my students, and it, it always hits hard. I also work in a jail. But I love what I do in in the jail setting because it's not under the framework of I'm a therapist and there's something wrong with you. So you have to go see a therapist. Instead, it's a it's an educational course. It's a personal development course that Mm -hmm. that inmates can choose to take. And what's interesting, I find is that whenever I've shared that poem in there, it hits especially hard and people are especially like if affected and empowered by it. And again, it's just it offers a whole new way of viewing mm. the darkness, the shame, the malice, the depression that I think is much more productive, much healthier.
1: Provides a meaning framework.
0: Provides a meaning framework.
1: Yeah, I like it.
0: Yeah. And and what's what I think is so interesting, too, about, you know, the way that you were writing about the meaning making systems, it just kind of was. Eye opening in different ways for me, especially to think about how many layers there are to the meaning-making systems and how the whole like like you said, you literally can't escape subjectivity in all of this, in the diagnosing that happens in the first place. Um, because they were conceived of in the first place by people who are influenced by their own cultural meaning making systems. And then there's broad mm-hmm. cultures and then there's subcultures. Yep. And then it's like every layer closer to the individual, there are meaning making systems. Yep. And yeah, it, it explains the inescapable subjective nature of all of this.
1: Yep. Might as well face that reality if you're going to work in this area. Right, right. Yeah.
0: And it doesn't, and, and, that's, and I feel like it doesn't. Yeah, mess-
1: I think, I think in, in, you know, one of the, one of the dangers of diagnosis for people who are practicing in this area is, is that um, I can understand why practitioners like it, particularly psychiatrists, I know a lot of psychiatrists, obviously. Is it gives you a sense of, um, you know, meeting otherness is always anxiety provoking, especially if it's meeting people in distress. And so it helps you with your own defenses um, uh, to feel that actually I can put that aside because I'm doing something technical here. Mm. So I'm listening to your story, but, Actually, what I'm trying to do is find out what symptoms, what the form is. How are you talking to me? Is your rhythm too far? I'm more interested in the form than the content. Um, uh, Okay, now I can put this together and make a diagnosis. And now I can explain to you the diagnosis and give you this treatment. And um, so that's very reassuring for you as a practitioner, but also... Creates a—you're um, uh, not just constructing a meaning-making system, but it kind of creates a, a barrier of uh, for empathy, hmm. because you're you're trying to, if you like, instead of trying to be close to that experience, you're using a system that helps you stay stay at some safe distance from the anxiety provoking nature of meeting somebody else's suffering interesting point wow
0: Hmm. so i want to make sure that 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 a person listening to this conversation let's say who is suffering that this ends up being helpful because you know it is crucial to understand the lack of like construct validity, as we might call it, in all of these diagnoses and, and the problems that a diagnosis can bring about. But let's say, you know, if we if we were to refrain from categorizing an individual suffering in terms of DSM classifications, but to but if we were to acknowledge this person is suffering intensely with tremendous anxiety and/or depression, et cetera. You talk about, you know your your approach. So I'd like to read what you wrote were the five um, principles that guide your practice, and I would love to hear you expound upon them. Um, number one is deconstructing the diagnosis. Number two, understanding the relevance of psychological injury, which is a word a phrase you like in place of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. which is a term that's I agree has become popularized. And yeah, it's just the, the waters are a little muddy around what trauma really is in this case. So yeah, the understanding the relevance of psychological injury, working on therapeutic relationships, awareness of culture and context, and then awareness of the way that The problem can become the problem and that once a problem is established, sometimes it perpetuates itself, like your insomnia example that you were mentioning earlier. So you wrote those as like the five kind of bullet point principles that guide your practice. And I would just love to hear more about just the way you practice, the way, you know, your perceptual set around working with people.
1: Um. Yeah, I think, um, like I said earlier, I always start from the principle that people are trying to do the best that they can in the situation they found themselves in. So I always start from the position of being non-judgmental and to, um, and I think of, what they're experiencing as being part of what I consider to be ordinary and or understandable human experiences. In terms of the literature the only thing that I think we can say with any certainty is that there is a strong association between adverse experiences of a variety of types and the likelihood of Having a psychiatric or psychological um, presentation. It's not a one to one, it's not a, but it just increases, um, and particularly if it happens when you're younger. And I prefer the word psychological injury because um, uh, what hurts somebody uh, can be very different depending on your history, your cultural background. Um, uh, than what uh, hurts somebody else, um, and I, I also kind of found the idea of trauma quite difficult to talk in those terms because I think young people who've grown up with things that um, have been unpleasant, difficult. Um, they often don't think of it in terms of trauma. That might be a word we put on it because it was their normal. They didn't have anything else to. So um, that's one of the reasons I, or some of the reasons I tend to talk in terms of psychological injury. It's just the idea that you've been hurt, you know, that was painful. That was unpleasant. That was difficult. And um, I can understand why you might be reacting this way all these years later. You still expect things to be, uh, um, you know, you're trying to protect yourself from uh, things being hurt again, you know, wh- whatever. And also with um, parents, uh, one of the things that I, because um, I usually, a lot of my work involves working with the family system. I think um, people, have a context so uh, I think of the context as um, their support network they can often do a lot more than they believe they can do their parents may come expecting that we have the answer and the specific intervention Um, but actually that's quite disempowering so um, uh, a lot of the time it's trying to. Help parents see how important they are and and how much they can influence, and mm-hmm. maybe just also to be a bit more patient sometimes about um uh what they expect or when they expect it, or you know there's all, all sorts of things so I see the that kind of system that people are part of as as a strength, as a resource, as something to 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 build on with them. And also, they can be really important in helping to um, de-medicalize or de-pathologize the story. That, um, uh, so you can talk to that to the young person. But if you talk to the young person and their parents, help them understand, for example, that um, the voices that the young person is hearing is not the main problem the The main problem is your interpretation of the voices and the fact that you want them to go away. And if they don't go away, that makes you feel even more hopeless. But what if the um, aim of our therapeutic intervention is not about how they go away, but how you engage with them, how you understand them, how you live with them, what they can teach you, you know? Um, And parents often get that. Uh, So uh, working with parents is... um, um, And we're very... um, We don't do culture well at all. We don't recognize, for example, that what we call um, psychiatry and psychology is the product of a culture in itself. It is a particular way of thinking about the nature of human functioning um i'm uh, my background is that um my father's iraqi and my mother's english so i speak arabic mm. and i've had these uh, discussions with my father when i uh, i would written a number of papers for the arab journal of psychiatry and um we had to translate uh, the abstract. You can you can write it in Arabic or you can write it in English as long as you have an abstract in in the other language. Mm. But I fell down on the first article that I did, almost the first word, because there actually isn't an equivalent word for mental mm. in Arabic. There's a choice of three different words, um, and their their roots are interesting. You know, for example, the word we settled on. Is a word called nefsiya, and it kind of refers to a kind of soul. So talk about amrav nefsiya. It's like illnesses of the soul. Mm. And even the word nefsiya is interesting because its root is in the word tanafus. Tanafus is breathing. Mm. So there's already a connection between breath and the idea of soul and the idea of mental functioning. So, I mean, and there's many other examples like that, that you can see that the language holds clues as to how culturally you construct our idea of what subjective life is differently. And, and, and we seem to be very, seem to have very little awareness of the different ways we can construct our sense of mental functioning our understanding of relationships and our understanding of our relationship to the broader world. I have to finish, I'm afraid, <laughs> but I'm course. loving this conversation. I
0: know, I am too. And what a, that was a fascinating last piece there too. Thank you for sharing that. Um, well, let's, let's wrap this up. And I, I just think your voice is one of the most important voices in this whole conversation. And I am so grateful that you speak out you know boldly fearlessly honestly thoroughly and and that you're able to continue to practice as a psychiatrist in a way that is genuinely helpful to people so dr tamimi thank you for your time and thank you for who you are and what you do much appreciated
1: well thank you so much nick for inviting me and thank you for all the work that you're doing we need to keep publicizing this
0: yes yes Well, let's stay connected. I'll reach out to you again soon. And I'll I'll let you know when this conversation is made public. But yeah, for now, have a wonderful night. And hopefully I'll talk to you again.
1: Let's hope so. Take care. You too.